And today, as we pick up our theme of Jesus first, really, it, it ties in very well because what we're going to see in Colossians 1 and verses 1 through 9 is a Jesus first church. What does it mean to be a Jesus first church? And so uh, last week we looked really at the theme verses. We read them at the beginning of the service, so we won't do that again. Uh, but we looked at verses 16 through 18. And that idea there, I will point out at the end of verse 18, that statement that in all things he might have the, could you say that word with me, in all things he might have the preeminence. Eminent things are important things, but preeminent things come before all of the important things. Jesus is the one who comes before all that is important in our lives. That means Jesus comes before our marriages. Jesus comes before our families. Jesus comes before our jobs. Jesus comes before our education. In all things, we want him to have first place. Book of Colossians, really that's the theme of the book. And I want to show you um, the first nine verses today as we introduce this. Verse number one of Colossians chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. Paul and Timothy were a dynamic pair in the ministry, and as Paul traveled on many of his journeys, Timothy, or here you see Timotheus, it's the same person, that was his, really his apprentice in the faith, and Timothy would have experienced Paul's ministry when he was very young, and now Paul, then Paul asked Timothy to travel with him. And so Timothy is also shares, um, at least in the greeting of this epistle. And who does he write to? So who do these heroes of the faith, who does this great apostle write to? Well, in verse number two, you see the audience is to the saints. A word about that in just a minute. To the saints and faithful brethren, in Christ, which are at Colossae. Colossae was a city in Asia Minor, and Paul had actually not been there. Paul did not plant this church. Now, there are a lot of churches that you read about in the scriptures, like the church at Ephesus, Corinth, the, um, the church at Philippi. Many of these churches, Paul had traveled and he had established them, but this church was not founded by Paul. It seems as if it was founded by a man by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras is mentioned throughout the scriptures. We'll see him a little bit more as well. But keep that in mind. And um, We know that Paul hasn't been there uh, because in chapter 2, he talks about the fact that they've never met each other face to face. But he, nevertheless, he has the role of being an apostle. And so the Lord used him to send a message to this church. And so in verse number 2, we see that he's writing to the saints, the faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. And as was commonly his greeting, he said, and why don't you say it with me? He said what? Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you before we move on? This isn't one of the points in the message, but so many of Paul's epistles begin with this, grace, peace. Wouldn't it be great if as Christians gather, the first impression we make on each other is grace and peace as we, as we come. But grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... This is kind of, this kind of um, hits home a little bit because, well, just pull out, your, pull out your missions moment today. Pull out your missions moment in the bulletin because the, the same thing, the, what Paul just says is, we're so thankful for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. This is, the, it's still happening today. Look at that, look at that second paragraph, women teaching women. There are many joys in the ministry, but the one that brings us so much happiness is seeing new believers see their importance in reaching others for the cause of Christ. 
We have mentioned Kamisa before. She's a new believer, but is growing quickly in her relationship with God. She continues to invite her neighbors to church, and these neighbors continue to get saved. This is the letter to the church in North Adams. Not from an apostle, but from, well, in the generic use of the word apostle, a sent one. Someone who's sent out on our behalf. It's a letter. And on a Sunday after church, Camisa introduced Chelsea to Rose. They sat together with some of the women in Chelsea's discipleship group. As they talked, it was clear that this neighbor, Rose, did not know Jesus as her Savior. In fact, one of the women in discipleship charity asked her if she knew Jesus as her Savior. And she said, no. At least we knew where she stood. Chelsea showed Rose from the Bible what it means to be saved. The women who are going through discipleship wanted to help Rose understand salvation. When she asked Rose if she wanted to pray to receive Jesus as her Savior, she said yes. Within the group was Mama Ike, I, I don't know how to pronounce that, but I'm going with that, who attends the women's Bible study and discipleship, but was still not saved. Chelsea asked if she was ready to get saved, and she said yes. We give thanks, verse 3, to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints. Do you understand what happened there? Paul got word. Paul found out. In fact, Epaphras, who I mentioned before, who's the founder probably of this church, or at least was one of the pastors of the church, Epaphras ended up in prison with Paul. In prison, we know from other scriptures. But Epaphras must have told Paul, Paul, you should meet all the people in Colossae who came to know Christ. And Paul says, ever since I heard that, I've just been praying for you. That's what, the, the, that's what church is all about. It's about seeing people saved, coming to know Christ, and growing. In fact, if you're here today, and you're like one of the women that we just read about in Africa, or you're like one of the people in Colossae, and you live right here and you say, well, I'm not sure that I'm saved. Just stick with us because by the end of this message, we will make it clear how you can know that you are saved, that you are on your way to heaven. That's the most important thing of all. So, since we heard of your faith in Christ and of the love which you have to all the saints, I hope you're getting, before I, I'm not even giving you the points, I'm just giving you the gist of the passage He's talking about a church, and he's describing this church. This is a church that, that is about people growing in their faith and coming to know Christ. Did this church have problems? Yeah, of course it did. They all do. We all do. All churches do. But they hadn't lost the heart of what they were all about. Verse 5, he also gives thanks in verse 5 for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Where have ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. Look what God has done. I stand amazed. Right? We just heard that song. This, is, this passage is all about that. It's, a Paul, it's Paul saying, I heard about you. Look what God has done. As he also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. In other words, he told us about you. He told us about your love in the Spirit. For this cause also, we also, since the day we heard of it. Did you see that? Go back to verse number four. Verse number four. Since we heard of your faith. Down in verse number nine. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. There's going to be some issues that Paul addresses with this church, but he really begins with just the profile. And you'll see that's the, there's two main points and then some statements underneath them today. But 
We've already looked at most of it, but this is a profile of a Jesus-first church. Now, a Jesus-first church can only, can only exist if it is made up of Jesus-first people. You understand? That a church is only centered on Jesus so much as the people are centered on Jesus. You can construct a building, and you can plan a service, and you can... You can, do all of, you can take all of those steps. You can even ask people to come and gather. But Jesus is only first in our midst if Jesus is first in our individual lives. So, the profile of a Jesus first church. You'll notice the church, a true Jesus first church, is made up of people, in verse number two, made up of people who are called saints. Could you say that word with me? But I want you to say this. If you know Jesus as your Savior, I want you to say, I am a, and then you're going to say that word. Ready? One, two, three. I am a, we are saints. Now, there's some religious traditions that teach that in order to be a saint, you have to be officially recognized by a board of, of, a of, well, I was going to make a joke. I'm not going to do that. So anyway, um, that there's, there's, see, I'm growing up. All right. So anyhow, um, that you can only be a saint if you've done some amazing thing in your life. And maybe there's a miracle attached to your life. And that only a select group of people could be known as saints. But you know what it means to be a saint? It means to be one who has been set apart. It means to be a person who has been made holy. If you could make yourself a saint by doing good things, you wouldn't be a saint because you would have made yourself holy. But a saint is someone who's recognized their sin and their need for a Savior. They've come to Jesus by faith, and Jesus said, I make you, I take you, and I set you apart as one of my holy ones. You belong to me. A church is made up of saints. Are you a saint? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because you can attend a church, but not truly be part of the church. Because that only comes through faith, personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This church is made up of saints. They were imperfect people, but they had a perfect God who called them saints. I want you to notice some other practical things in verse number two. To the saints and, now the and isn't like, well, there's this group and then there's this group. No, the and is a second descriptor of these people. You are saints, but you are also what? You are faithful. You are faithful brethren. That word, it applies to both genders. You are faithful brothers and sisters. Not only did Jesus set you apart, not only are you called saints, but in this church there was a core of faithful brothers and sisters. And do you know why this morning I intentionally said I want to thank you for being here today? Because this church is not the church that it could be without you without each of us. Any thriving Jesus-first church must have a group of people that don't just stop and saying, well, Jesus saved me, I'm a saint, I'm okay. No, it takes a net, they, they need to, we need to take it a next step in our discipleship and say, I'm not just going to enjoy the benefits of my salvation, but I'm going to sign up for the long haul. I am going to be a faithful brother. I am going to be a faithful sister to this body that Christ has called me to. So important. And the, the profile of a Jesus first church is people who are called by God saints. There's a core of faithful brothers and sisters. And I don't have one single reference for this in here, but I think you saw in the theme of all the verses we read, it was a church that was carrying the gospel. They had been given the gospel. There's multiple references in the passage to that you heard it, you received it, that it was given to you by Epaphras, that you hold the truth. This was a church, by the time this was written, most Bible scholars believe we are at about A.D. 60, to 65. AD 60 to 65. So quick Bible trivia for all of the all of the, um, the, the serious students in here. All right, quick Bible trivia. How many years after the founding of the church roughly would this be? 
That would be the birth of Christ. 30 years. Where Jesus died around A.D. 33, we have approximations on this. This is 30 years later. 30 years later, people are still carrying the gospel. They're carrying the mission. 30 years, in some senses, is a, is a short span in the course of our lives. Some of you are saying, boy, the last 30 years flew by a lot faster than the first 30 years did. But 30 years is also, it's also a significant amount of time. Would it be, will it be said of you in 30 years that you are still faithfully carrying the gospel? Will it be said of us that we still walk with the Lord? May God, may, may, may God allow for this church, this church in 30 years, to still be carrying the gospel. But that is going to be largely, you see, the church, the church of Jesus Christ will march on. Whether this local church does or doesn't, the church of Jesus Christ will march on. The question for us as stewards of this generation that we, we've been given, will we take this church that we've received and will we carry it 30 more years? This church is carrying the gospel. And this church, the fourth profile of this Jesus First Church, is they have committed shepherds. They have committed shepherds to the church. Now, it's always awkward for pastors to preach about pastors. You can see the awkwardness in that, could you not? Some one of you is laughing along when we work right there. It can be a little bit awkward. But it's important that we recognize that this is important. And you see this in verse number seven, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a what? Faithful minister of Christ. A, a, what is Paul doing here? Think about what he's doing. He is telling the church, is, he's thanking the church for their faithfulness, but he's also commending to the church the faithfulness of their pastor. Right? And he's showing a church that a church ought to be, a church ought to recognize and give gratitude for the faithfulness of their pastor. Now, our church has been blessed with multiple, with multiple faithful pastors. We had a faithful pastor who founded this church in 1982. Pastor Lester Ainsworth, who came and was a faithful minister of Christ for us. None of the pastors of this church have been perfect men, but faithful men is the goal. So for, for, for years, he carried on the ministry, was faithful. Some of you, he was your pastor. How many of you, Lester Ainsworth was your pastor? Wow. There's still a, that's, that is pretty cool. All right, there's still a, there's some here. And then, since 1990, how many years is that now? Somebody do the math. 43 years? 33 years, I'm sorry. 33 years. My dad, Pastor Eric Malachuk, served this church. He is, and continues to serve the church, as a faithful pastor of the Word. And a faithful minister to us for Christ. I came here after growing up here in 2006. In 2006. So this will be 17 years this July. And I've endeavored my best to be a faithful minister of Christ. Aaron has served here now, will be coming up on 11 years as a faithful member of our pastoral staff as well. So, again, it's a little bit awkward for pastors to talk about pastors, but it's in the text, and so I want to point it out. It's important for a church to recognize that. We do live in a day where the average tenure of a pastor in a church is, does anybody know the year, how many years? You all, it's three to five. It's three to five years. So, um, we ought to be thankful for the men who've gone before and the men who are here serving faithfully. So, but I, as a pastor, need to be thankful for you. Because it's a whole lot more fun to pastor faithful people. 
It's a joy. It's a delight. It's a partnership. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an evidence of a Jesus-first church. Called saints, a core of faithful brothers and sisters, carrying the gospel with committed shepherds. It's a beautiful thing. It's called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can find fault, and I can find fault, and people will always find fault with the different expressions of God's church. Go from local church to local church. But the church is not ours. It belongs to Jesus Christ. That in all things, he might have the preeminence. Lift him up. Lift him up. That's the profile of a Jesus first church. Now let me show you the second theme in the passage. Now let's look at the people who make up a Jesus first church. The people who make up a Jesus first church. It should go without saying that a, a church that puts Jesus first is make up, made up of people who live for Christ. People who live for Christ. He says that in verse 3. We give thanks to God in the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And I love the statement. Remember, we showed that it appears twice since we what? Since we what? Heard. In other words, the news is out. The secret's out. Everybody is hearing. There was another church that is, was spoken of this way. It was the church in Thessalonica. And Paul basically writes to them, Hey, people are talking about you. There's a, there is a, the, the, the story of Colossae. The story of the Colossian church has gotten out. And since we heard of it, heard of it, I just said, Thank God for those people. Thank God for that church. Thank God that they're there. These are people who live for Jesus. And can I share with you, as dark as the days may seem today, it was darker in Colossae in AD 65. There was a more oppressive government than there is today. There was more false religion. There was more social pressure against Christianity then than there was today. But these were people who proudly took the mark of baptism. They proudly went under the water and they came up and they said to their whole community, we belong to Jesus Christ. And in different Roman societies, you all were talking about this a little bit in the adult Bible class today, but in different Roman cultures and definitely among the Jews who became Christians, taking the mark of baptism, identifying yourself with Jesus, making that step meant you would be ostracized, you would lose your social standing, you would be cut off from your community. In some cases, you would lose your job. And in just a few years, these people would be declared illegal enemies of the state, they would be hunted down, they would be marked, they would be arrested, they would have to go into hiding, as for the next 200 years, the Roman Empire tried to stamp out their very existence. But they said, we will follow the way. That was one of the terms for following Christ. We will follow the way. We will be called Christians. We will live for Jesus. Will you do that? Not in A.D. 65, but in A.D. 2023? Will you unashamedly go to work and say, Jesus comes first in my life? Wherever you go, wherever you live, are you, are you somebody who says, I will live for Christ because it's worth it. He is my everything. He is my all. There are people who live for Christ. And then notice something else about people. There's an amazing thing. When we put Jesus first, we tend to treat other people a whole lot better. Did you know that? If you're having a hard time, if you're having a hard time treating someone in your life properly, ask the Lord if you're truly putting him first in your life. Because if we follow Christ, it's the way of self-denial and putting others before ourselves. Do you see what else it says here? Not just about their radical faith in Christ, but he says, we've also heard of the, what's it say? Of the love which ye have to who? All the saints. I heard somebody emphasize that, that little descriptor word at the beginning. Which saints did they love? All the saints. How many of you met some crazy saints over the years? 
Anybody ever met any annoying saints over the years? What's wrong with you people? I'll tell you. <laughs> Your love to all the saints. People who put Jesus first play nice with other Christians. They have love, genuine love. They handle disagreements differently. It's an ugly thing for the world to watch Christians at, at each other's throats. It's, an, it's, a, it's a poor testimony of the name of Jesus. You say, oh, but this Christian, I have a serious disagreement with them. That's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. But how, you, how do you handle that disagreement? How do you treat that person with whom you disagree? You have a love. This church has a love for all the saints. In our previous series in the upper room, Jesus said and that the whole world would know you are my disciples because you have what? Love one to another. In fact, when the, when the social pressure of the Roman Empire was cracking down, one of, the, one of the Roman writers said of the Christians, oh, how they love one another. That's one thing we can't say against them. Oh, how they love one another. Christian people who put Jesus first. Now, I, I have been, and you probably have been, a saint that doesn't show proper love to all the saints. But that's an evidence that Jesus is not first. So, what, so do you remember where we began? A Jesus-first church has to be made up of Jesus-first people, right? How do we know if we're putting Jesus first? Well, here's some evidences. There's a radical dedication to live for Christ. There's a love for all the saints. And then I love this one. It's a, we are a people. We are to be a people whose hope is heaven. Verse 5, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. In heaven. There's a, it's popular among uh, a lot, of, and I'm not totally against this, but it's popular among a lot of Christian books you le read now about redeeming the culture and, and having an impact on the world in which we live. And listen, the Bible teaches us to be salt and light. I am all for that. But we must never forget that our residence, our citizenship does not belong to this world. If you are a Christian, your home is in heaven. That means it is okay if you don't take as many vacations as your coworkers do. It's okay. Do you know why? Because you're looking forward to heaven. Now, disabuse yourself of any false notions of heaven. What do you, what do you mean? I mean like the clouds and the harps. Plum, 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 plum. You, know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? The, the cartoonish depictions of heaven. The Bible gives us some glimpses of heaven, but even then we can't get a full picture. We believe that if Jesus is preparing a place for us, we believe that it's got to be even better than this place that he already gave us that has a curse on it. So whatever we'll be doing in heaven will be of immensely more joy and immensely more pleasure. It will be incredibly more satisfying than anything we can receive on earth. So listen, I'm not, being a, I'm not saying that you should go live in a monastery and not enjoy any pleasures of life. No, th these are good gifts of the Lord. But at the same time, we should not pursue the same goals as the world around us. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus said the birds, the birds have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lie down his head. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where mold and rust will corrupt, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. We do not, now, we believe, that there's two things. On, on the one hand, we do not seek to find the same fulfillment out of this earth that the rest of our culture does. But on the other hand, we've come to know that we actually, in Christ, find greater fulfillment in this, even in this earth than the rest of our culture does. But it's through different experiences. But ultimately, heaven is our goal. Listen, they weren't teaching, you know, the Colossian church, 
in a few years, like think about the things we talk about in our churches today. And I'm not against these things. But churches hold Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University seminars to help us run our, run our check, checking accounts better. I'm thankful for all that stuff. But do you think the church at Colossae was worried about their investments and building wealth and saving for retirement? They're like, they're going to be like, hey, we're just trying to avoid persecution right now. Again, don't misunderstand me. We live today. We don't live then. We steward resources today. So I'm not, I've, I've taught financial seminars here, right? If you're, if you're good with your money, then it's a, you can be a blessing. But my point is this. Our Western church is so focused on, we get so focused on uh, relational success and financial success and education and setting all of these lives up. Sometimes we forget that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in heaven. There's a hope laid up for us. So as you plan your life, are you, are we, is it, is it a Jesus first life? Is our hope in heaven? Well, let's move on. These are, Jesus first people are people who live for Christ. They love the saints. Their hope is in heaven. Verse number five, they also hold to the truth. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the, say this phrase with me, ready? The word of the truth of the gospel. The word of the truth of the gospel. Two important, well, three important words here. Word, truth, gospel. Word, truth, gospel. Let's do it backwards. What does gospel mean? If you don't know, listen carefully. Church, what does gospel mean? It means good news. It's good news. It's good news, but let's back it up now. The good news is news that is what? It's true. It's true. We live in a generation where our academic and philosophical leaders say that there is no truth. They teach. It is, it's the underpinning of much of our modern education system, of our arts, uh, of our, our arts culture, is that there is no objective truth. Truth is what you make it. Whereas the scripture gives us rock-solid certainty that the message of Jesus is truth. It's good news. Whoa, we need to anchor this thing here. It's good news that is, we're backing it up, ready? It's good news that is, that is found in the word. Good news that is truth that is found in the word. It's in the word. Every generation of Christians has faced a movement or movements to move us away from the word of God. Every generation has had, sometimes they've been religious ideas, sometimes they've been, sometimes they have been scientific ideas, sometimes they've been philosophical ideas, but every generation has had a, a group of people that would say, well, I don't really know if you should take that book so seriously. That was even from the Garden of Eden. The original temptation to Eve was, did God really say that? Be careful when you hear anyone start to reinterpret or redefine sacred truths of the Scripture that we have, that Christians have practiced for millennia. In the generation in which we live today, this month in particular, you will even meet some people that claim the name of Christ that say, well, you know, this whole thing about human sexuality, what the Bible was really saying, if you study it in the original context, and, you, and they'll use all kinds of fancy words to try to undo what the church has historically understood to be truth about, about sexuality, from its very inception. In our generation, it's just, another, it's just another step. In previous generations, it was evolutionary biology. Well, if you look at the Bible, you can really readapt it or reinterpret it to our modern sensibilities. A Jesus-first church values his word above everything else. And may we be a church that is anchored and founded on the word of God. You say, but, but, but Ethan, you know, if, if, if I believe that, if I speak up, if I say that, people will tell me I'm hateful. That is what will happen. 
you, no matter how nice you are, you will be misrepresented. You will be mocked. You will be, you'll be criticized. But you just have to give an account, and I just have to give an account, not to my community, but to God. Jesus first. His word comes first. His word. People who hold to the truth. Now, in future weeks, you're going to see that there were two big errors that were threatening the church at Colossians, of Colossae. There were two things they fought against. You say, what were they? Ha ha, you'll have to come back and learn more about that. They're people who hold to the truth. They live for Christ. They love the saints. Their hope is heaven. They hold the truth. Verse number six, they're growing. They're growing. They're a growing people. Look at verse six. A Jesus first church is filled with people that are a little bit further in their faith today than they were yesterday. This truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth what? Fruit. As it doth also in you. The word of God is not just to be studied and read and understood. It is supposed to produce in our lives. It is supposed to change us from inside out. How is your life different through your encounter with the Word of God? How has your life changed? Now, you might say, well, Ethan, if you knew me before I found Jesus, whew, you would be shocked. How many of you, that's your testimony? Raise your hand, say amen. Claim it. Amen. That's a miracle of God's grace. Praise the Lord. If you knew me before I knew Jesus, you'd be shocked. I was the last person you'd ever imagine was going to be in a church. Do you know what happened? The Word produced fruit in your life. And we're enjoying the benefit of that fruit today. Because you're a blessing to each. That's the Word producing the fruit. There's growth. But i got to ask us all this now. What has the Word of God changed in your life recently? Recently. Has anybody, anybody in here want to raise their hand and say, well, I've arrived, all the changing, I mean, you can't mess with perfect, right? Do you know what happens a lot to Christian people? Is we get this radical transformation, and our lives are so much different than they were, they were before, and then we just kind of find this place, and we just kind of settle in. We find a comfy spot. We pick a chair that we like. How many of you sit in the same seat every week? Claiming it, naming it. Awesome. All right. I'm, that's fine with me. It's predictable. I know where to look for the friendly faces. I know the sleepers. To, no, I'm just kidding. So it's okay. I don't mind the same seat. But that is a bit of a metaphor for the way some people live their Christian lives. They settle into their seat. They get into their spot. And their life has changed a lot from what it used to be. But we're good. We're good. I know in my life recently, the Lord's been dealing with me about how I, how I, how I treat my wife and my children. And my, but my, the, the way I speak to them and the way I do that. You know why? Because, look, you could look from the outside and you could say, hey, you know, your life is, you know, com compared to you've got it, you're married, you have four children, everything seems to be going good. But... Yeah, I settle in sometimes. But my job isn't to compare myself to the world. It's not my job to compare myself to you. What we're all supposed to be doing is seeing God produce more fruit in our lives. So what has changed in your life because of the Word of God recently? Recently. This is one of the joys of the Christian life is it never has to stop. It never has to... It's a, listen... This, this is, I'm not talking about a painful thing this morning. I'm talking about joy. If you let God produce his fruit through his word in your life, you're going to step into greater joy. What is God doing recently? How many of you would say that? How many of you would say, you know what, that point right there just convicted me? Okay, me too. That point right there just convicted me. You got some notes? Write something down. Or, or you could just leave and forget it. Because come Wednesday, ask me what I preached about today. You know what I'm going to do? 
Uh, uh, it was in Colossians, I know that. You're not gonna you're, you, you might not remember this moment. If God is speaking to you right now and you're like, you know what, nothing has grown in my life recently. There's not been any f- new fruit produced recently. Make a note to yourself right now. What's the fruit that God's trying to, God, not trying, I, hate, I say that a lot. God's not trying to do anything, right? God has a plan. We either submit to his plan or we don't. And if we submit, boom, the grace comes in and he empowers and he equips and he does it all and he produces the fruit. People who are growing. This is Jesus' first church. It's easy to look at others, but let's look at ourselves. And then, this is the best place to finish. Also in verse 6, a Jesus' first church is made up of people who experience grace. Grace. Verse 6, this gospel has come unto you as it is in all the world. It brings forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew. You knew the grace of God in truth. There are some people that read the truth. Did you know that you can read the truth but not receive the grace? You can read the words, but miss the grace. You can be a religious person, but miss out on grace. Because grace is God producing in us and for us. Religion teaches my effort produces something of value in my life to God. You follow that? It's like like I go to work, I put in my hours, and they give me a paycheck. Well, some Christians have this false idea of a transactional relationship with God where they say, you know what? I'll put in my time. I'll give my tithe. I'll do all these things. I'll give them to God. And then surely he will be pleased with me. No, it's the complete opposite. It's the complete opposite. It says, wait a minute. I look at the word that says that while I was a sinner, Christ loved me and died for me. It says that that. That, that God's love is on me despite what I do. That even my good deeds are like filthy rags. And I, and I say, when well, Jesus would love me, a sinner, that is grace. When you see the word of God, how it's meant to be seen, you don't see law, you see grace. For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And there are many people that miss, the, miss it. The door into the Christian life is grace. But each step beyond that door is also what? Grace. Each step is a step of grace. Yes, there's effort on our part. There's yielding on our part. There's commitment on our part. But who is doing the spiritual work? Are we doing it? No, it is grace that is accomplishing it. Grace is the key to the Christian life. That's why, that's why John Newton wrote the hymn, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You talk about the least possible person to be saved. How about a captain? How about a captain of a 17th century slave ship? Like in our culture today, you couldn't think of anybody more diabolical than that. Just think about it. He took, him, he took captured, stolen people. He imprisoned them. He put them on his boat where many of them would die. That was his life until God radically transformed him. And he left that life. And he gave his heart to Jesus. And that's why for hundreds, for centuries, people have resonated with that song because that song teaches the message of grace from the Bible that it is not about how good you can be. It is not about how much you can clean yourself up. It's about how dependent you can be on God and how much you can trust God to do for you what you could never do for yourself. John Newton did not, did not transform his life. Jesus transformed his life. And if you are here today and you have the idea, well, you know what? A little religion would be good for me in my life. 
a little more uh, you know, adherence to scriptural principles, this would probably help me. Or you grew up with a religious system that taught you that you give God your credits and he gives you back a little grace and you turn in a few more tokens of good works and he gives you a little more grace. That is not the gospel. That is not the message of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is saying, God, I come to you a lost sinner. Please save me from my sins and now transform my life. And so there was a day, for me, I was a child. For some of you, you were an adult. But there was a day where I recognized I am a lost sinner. Only Jesus can save me. But I understood that he would want to change me. And so now, the rest of my Christian life, that was the starting point. I started in grace. Now, the only success I've ever had as a Christian is when I don't go back to law, but I stay in his grace. Say, God, help me to be someone who lives for you. Give me a love for the saints. God, I need your grace to know that my hope is in heaven. I never want to depart from the truth. I want to grow. Lord, I need your grace. Church, that's what we need. We need to know. And that word know is the idea of knowing through experience. We need to experience God's transformative grace in our lives. So I have two questions. Two questions to end the sermon. First of all, have you ever, has there been a moment in your life where you began at that entry point, where you received the grace of God? If not, you cannot be sure. Do you remember where we began with those people that said, hey, are you saved? And they said, I don't know. I don't know. There is a way to be saved. And the way to be saved is to repent of your sin. To admit to God, yes, I'm a sinner. And then to put all of your faith in Jesus. The Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you right now are willing to admit to God that you're a sinner. And you're willing to put all your faith in Jesus. Then in this moment right now you can be saved. You can receive his grace. So question number one, has that ever happened in your life? Have you ever received Christ as your Savior? If you're taking notes, answer the question, yes or no. Have you received Christ as your Savior? Are you sure? If not, in just a minute, I'll help you make that decision if you'd like. The second question is for people who would answer yes. I have received Christ as my Savior. Well, let's just take one point from the message. What is God's grace through his word? What kind of fruit is being produced in your life right now? Or what does God desire to produce in your life or my life? So as we come to a time of reflection and response, we'll have a time of prayer. It's a time for you and I to pray with the Lord, to think about what we've just read from his word, and to make a decision. For how will we leave differently than we came in? So would you do that with me right now? Would you bow your heads, please? And would you close your eyes? This is an important part of the service, so I always ask that we just be still for a few minutes. Just a still moment. Back to the first question. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, but you'd say, Ethan, I'm ready. Right now, I want to make sure that my faith is in Jesus it's not in anything else. Well, you can do that right now. Simply call out to God. You can pray to him. You say, what do I pray? Well, you just tell him that you're a sinner and you need his salvation. Tell him that you believe in him. Tell him you're trusting in him and in him alone. If you'd like, you could pray something like this. You could say, dear God, I am a sinner. I am lost. But I believe, Jesus, that you died for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead. Please save me. I put all my faith and all my trust in you. I'm trusting in you, Jesus, and you alone. I receive your grace. It's not the words of the prayer. It's the condition of your heart as you call out to God. So if you did that this morning, I'd love to pray for you. If you're watching online and you receive Christ, would you send us a private message? Say, hey, pray for me. Pray for me. I receive Jesus as my Savior. 
We'd love to hear about that and pray for you. If you're in this room, I won't call out your name or I won't embarrass you, but if you'd say, Ethan, I made sure today, I made sure that my faith was in Jesus. Would you just, with, with no one looking, would you just quickly slip up your hand and put it down? I'd love to pray for you. You'd say, Ethan, I made sure today. Hand up, hand down. If you, if you t- say, I did that today. Christian, how is God speaking to you? Pastor Aaron's going to play a little bit of music. We're going to get ready to sing. But this is a time for you to pray. So we'll just be quiet. We'll be still. When he senses the time is right, Aaron will lead us all in prayer. But just spend a few minutes asking God to help you grow in his grace. Father, we thank you so much for this message, Lord. We thank you for the challenge this morning. We pray that you would help us to be a Jesus First church. God, I pray that you challenge Maybe someone in here doesn't know you as their savior, but today would be the day that they would put their faith in you. God, we pray that for those of us who do trust in you, that you would challenge us, Lord, to grow in grace and in our faith each and every day. We pray that we would be open and receptive to your Holy Spirit, making us more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, If you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.